How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code Bonus content. Thank you for your support. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Obviously, there is a lot to discuss today with the uh, indictment by Jack Smith yesterday of Donald Trump for his role in uh, both the January 6th uprising and in the general effort to um, steal the election. We've got three of um, the best people I can think of who are also our pals here to discuss it. Uh, Jen Rubin with The Washington Post. How are you doing, Jen? I'm doing great. Uh, David Sanger with The New York Times. How are you doing, David? I'm very good, David. Up here in, up here in Vermont where the, where the uh, floodwaters have finally receded. Um, well, I, yeah, well, we, we had it pretty rough here too in DC. I don't know if your home here is still intact. Have you checked? Uh, I, I've looked at, I've looked at pictures. It seems like most things are still intact. Yeah. It's, yeah. I've never, I've never seen destruction like I've seen in our neighborhood here. Literally every block, literally all the streets were closed for a couple of days because trees everywhere. Anyway, that's not what we're here to discuss, but. It, it it did knock out power for a couple of days. Max Boot living far away from all of this destruction. Um, uh, it securely set where? In New York City, Max? Is that where you are right now? I am in New York, which, you know, has only narrowly avoided being destroyed by mobs of woke hipsters and, you know, radical Marxist feminists and other and other people who are bringing about the ruin of our great republic. That's just your family, Max, right? You know, Max, I saw a story yesterday that said that the Gen Gen Z crowd does not use the term woke anymore. Uh, I saw. It, even that, that, that This could be the salvation of us all, that we have to find some some new term to uh, to convey the concept. Yeah. Well, we can talk about Whatever that. Whatever the concept little, is, I yeah, I'm well, not sure. Yeah, kindness, compassion. We can discuss that uh, later, if you like. Uh, but uh, clearly, um, the news... Um, of this indictment, um, even though everybody expected it, um, hit hard because we've never seen anything like this before. And also, 
I think in part because the seriousness with which it was presented, the gravitas of the few words of Jack Smith. Uh, and I'd like to just start by getting everybody's reaction to it, and then let's try to make some kind of effort to put it into context. But first, Jen. Well, I think it was, from a legal perspective, a very deftly drawn. He has an enormous body of facts and multiple ways he could have framed this. But he chose a way that, frankly, will be easier to prove and sidesteps a number of potential defenses. He chose three, four, if you're counting uh, the two different 15, 12 charges separately, um, that really do not require, in fact, sidestep entirely Trump's connection to the violence. The way it is framed is that Trump exploited it, but did not instigate that. And in framing it that way, he really makes the case about these three other interlocking conspiracies that do not involve free speech issues. And that is, I think, a very smart move. One is the conspiracy involving the phony electors. One is the conspiracy to enlist the Justice Department. And one is the conspiracy to enlist the vice president. The facts that he lays out are, in a sense, a very narrowed, distilled version of what the January 6th committee put together. There are some additions, there's some little tidbits uh, of greater detail. We know that Pence talked to him, for example, because we now have direct quotes from the vice president. But it's a case that is designed to move quickly, that is designed to be understandable by an audience, which is the jury. And I think it gets to the gravity of the crime, which is a gravity, uh, which is a crime against democracy. He does not bring in the sedition or seditious conspiracy claim, which would have these complex issues, including First Amendment rights to engage in. So from a pure legal standpoint, it's very clearly drafted, cleverly drafted, he disclaims up front that he is trying to impede anyone's free speech. Trump could say whatever he wants. And then he makes it about this plot to overthrow our democracy. Uh, well, well stated. David, what was your reaction from up in far away Vermont? Well, um, I agree with Jen. This was a very disciplined uh, indictment. Disciplined because it focuses on the actions after January 6th not on the lead up to January 6th. And there was a huge temptation, and I think probably put into a dead end uh, for um, Special Counsel Smith to uh, make the case that uh, President Trump had incited the riot. And as Jen suggests, would have then brought on the free speech um, and free political speech defense. So instead, he is focusing almost entirely on what happens after January 6th uh, or what happens after the election itself as the president tries to um, make sure that uh, that the case is, is made that he actually won. So it doesn't focus on what he said, but rather on what he did. And that's the false electors part. That's the making the trying to, to coerce people to, to uh, claim that there are votes where there are not. And in so doing, you know, I think what he has done is basically 
done the first indictment that we have seen that gets to the heart of the issue, which is the peaceful transfer of power. That he basically is making the argument that Donald Trump is the first president of the United States who attempted to undercut the peaceful transfer of power with a series of actions, not with a series of words. And, you know, in that in that regard, it makes the other cases that are around look a bit smaller. Um, certainly the Stormy Daniels case in New York, which is based on an untested legal theory. Um, even the, the case about uh, revealing classified information, which I think may turn out to be a very solid federal case, but is not on as big an issue as manipulating the core of the American democracy. Max? Well, there's no question that the indictments keep getting better and better. We kind of started with the worst one of all, which was the New York one on dubious grounds of violating campaign finance laws. And now we've achieved, as as David said, kind of one that goes to the very heart of our democracy. And of course, there could be another one along similar lines coming from uh, Atlanta before too long. And I, I mean, my, I guess my initial reactions were two. First initial reaction was, this is, it's wonderful to live in a country where a former president can be held to account and the rule of law can apply even to somebody with as much power and as many followers as Donald Trump. I think that's a real victory for the American legal system and for the rule of law. But that, but that, you know, that conviction and, and so to speak was quickly followed by, by my, dismay to live in a country where this very same president who now faces something like 78 criminal charges and counting is almost certain to be the Republican presidential nominee next year and has a very good chance of winning back the presidency. I mean, there are so many unprecedented firsts with Donald Trump. I'm, I, you know, this guy has been exploding heads, including mine, since he first came onto the political scene in 2015. And my head continues to explode because I can't get my head around the fact that we're likely to see these two related phenomena next year. A, Trump wins the Republican presidential nomination. B, Trump is convicted of multiple crimes. He could be headed for prison by the time the presidential election takes place. Uh, and then he could wind up getting a get out of jail free card by being elected president. I mean, this is insanity of a very high order that we have never even had to contemplate before. And I just have no idea how any of these things shake out. But, and I think up until a few months ago, there was this hope, uh, uh, really wishful thinking that the very fact that Trump was being indicted or would be indicted uh, would prevent the Republican Party from nominating him, that the COP, sorry. Apologies, my phone uh, just blew up. There's always, there's always one in every crowd, Max. Yes. Uh, but I think until recently, there was this hope that the fact that Trump was being indicted would prevent his nomination by the Republican Party. And right now, it's pretty clear that's not happening. I mean, he's like 50 points ahead of DeSantis in national polling. Okay, state results are different. Things could still, it's not impossible for DeSantis or somebody else to come from behind, but it's very unlikely at this point. And if anything, these uh, indictments seem to be solidifying Republicans' hold, uh, uh, Trump's hold on the Republican base. And 
It's dismaying to see even the so-called responsible organs of conservative opinion, e.g. the Wall Street Journal editorial page or National Review kind of wringing their hands and tut-tutting and suggesting that, well, yes, we don't approve of Mr. Trump, but he should not be indicted. So unfortunately, I see no evidence that the Republican Party is turning against Trump because of these indictments. And this is heading, leading the entire country through this train wreck of an election combined uh, with multiple criminal cases next year. Okay. Now that's depressing. Jen, that can't possibly happen, right? I mean, you know, we've never seen this before. The, The guy has got this many indictments going now, and there's probably going to be another one next week, probably on a big RICO case on what happened in Georgia. Um, Every single week from now through the election, there's going to be new news, some new revelation, some Trumpian meltdown, some new something on social media. Um, uh, And, you know, by the way, the, the the Jack Smith case, which I agree with you, was very carefully constructed. All the evidence against him is coming from Republicans, people who worked for Trump, and they're going to be on the stand, or they're going to be, you know, uh, you know, Mike Pence, who looks like he's the central witness in this, who took contemporaneous notes of his conversations with Trump. Surely, surely, that this is going to eat away at this lead he has. And somebody, not somebody great necessarily, but somebody else is going to step up and we're not going to end up in this nightmare Max describes, right, please? Well, yes and no. Uh, First of all, I do want to point out that a great deal of the evidence is going to come from Trump's own lips because he has this habit, um, this um, really blind spot of repeating things that he thinks exonerate him in the eyes of his supporters that are actually damning from a legal standpoint. So part of this is going to be a flurry of statements against uh, interest, as they say, um, which is the defendant unintentionally confessing before the American people. But be that as it may, first, you are right, we're going to see an all-star cast of formerly respected Republicans, including probably the former Attorney General Bill Barr, who was witness to much of this, the former Vice President of the United States, um, and other casts of characters, and of course, Mark Meadows, who appears nowhere here, and one can assume has been cooperating at some deep level because Otherwise, he would be one of those co-conspirators. Um, so he, I think, is going to make a starring appearance in this. As far as the political analysis, I have come to the conclusion on the first part that the Republicans are so deep in their delusions. They are so trapped within this right-wing metasphere and psychologically are so unable to admit that they've been taken for a ride for the past six years, that they will not be able to let go of him, that they will continue to deny, ignore, lie to themselves, lie to others, and they will in all likelihood nominate him. However, I am much more confident than Max that not only will he be defeated, but this will be really quite catastrophic for the party. I know that the polls right now show things are close. I don't put any stock in any poll that's a year in advance, particularly polls that show 15% of the people don't know how they're going to vote between these two people who everyone in the United States knows who they are. I don't really buy that. But I 
when you think back to 2020, what individual who didn't vote for him then is going to say, oh my gosh, now that he's done all these things, I'm going to vote for him. What additional people could he find? And in fact, he is certainly going to lose people, not necessarily people who will run to vote for Joe Biden, but Republicans who will simply stay home. And the staying home phenomenon is, of course, desperately dangerous to Republicans who are down ticket because they need all of those people to turn out. So as dismayed and frustrated as I am that these Republicans, including these people who absolutely should know better, as Max says, um, are continuing to drive this toxic relationship, this codependency. I kind of feel like I would say, oh, no, stop. Don't do that. Oh, well, they're not listening. I guess they won't. They really are not amenable to reason. They're going to do this. And I have a little bit more confidence um, that this time around, it really isn't going to work. And when you ask questions that are a little bit more probative than who do you want to win, like, do you think Donald Trump committed crimes? 65% of the people say, yeah, he really did. Um, yeah. And, and, and 20, 20, and 20, I think 20% of the Republicans who say that Trump committed a crime also say they will still support him. Yes, but the good thing is the Republicans are smaller than ever. You have a concentrated, more intense group of absolute true believers, but they do not make a majority, thank goodness. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, there is a big chunk of the Republican Party that believes that the government is run by pedophile Satanists. Um, according to a recent survey, uh, which happens to be roughly the same percentage of the populace that believes in Bigfoot. So, and in my view, it's probably the same percentage. Um, in any event, David, um, is this a case where in order for this to be a sort of high watermark for our system, where we show that people are held to account, Donald Trump has to be convicted in a court and by the electorate? Do, do we need both decisions uh, for this to, to sort of be seen by history as a repudiation of his tactics? Probably do. I mean, the, the irony of the situation we're in right now is that we're in a race between the judicial branch and the electoral system, right? So we don't know right now which of these trials is actually going to take place before the election. If President Trump does not survive the election, if Biden is reelected, it doesn't make any difference when the trials are. If, on the other hand, we have had trials that have not taken place, um, it makes a huge difference because the federal cases presumably will go away because the Justice Department will drop the cases on the on. on uh, re-elected President Trump's orders. And the state cases might proceed or might be suspended under the theory that a president can't be charged with crime while he is sitting and they would wait until his term was over. So it's not as if these two that you mentioned, David, the judicial system and the electoral system out here, are disconnected. They are deeply connected depending on the time. Um, the second point that uh, you made at the beginning about the centrality of Mike Pence and other Republicans to this is really striking. 
And if you go into the indictment, and I don't know how many of uh, President Trump's supporters will actually read it because they're going to say this is a political document and, you know, you've heard, heard all of this. There's this phone call uh, where uh, Pence calls the president uh, on Christmas Day to wish him um, Merry Christmas. And after they're done uh, doing their Merry Christmas stuff, uh, Pence uh, is told by the president uh, that he must reject the electoral vote when it comes up in what would then be, what, 16, 17 days away. Um, And he says, you know, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome. And then there's another call on New Year's Day where... uh, Pence says that it would be improper for him to uh, interfere with the vote. And that's where President Trump says, presumably according to Pence's memory, you're too honest. Which I think sort of gets to the heart of the case. right? And all of this is laid out in what, you know, I guess they used to call a speaking indictment, where the indictment itself lays out the core of the case. Now, as Jen points out, there could well be more witnesses, I'm certain there are, that they didn't lay out in the indictment. There could be a superseding indictment. There could be Mark Meadows coming in to either support what Pence has said or offer new details or others who were there. Um, But the indictment itself, you know, makes pretty clear the state of mind. The question is, could could they convince a jury that this actually turned into a conspiracy, an active conspiracy, not just statements, to reverse the vote. And, you know, I think the indictment makes a pretty strong case, but what I think or what any of us think doesn't make any difference. It's a question of what the jury thinks. And that jury will be in Washington, D.C. It will not be in Florida, which obviously makes a difference. And it's in front of a judge who has done, I would say, the toughest sentencing in the January 6th cases of any judgment. I gotta say, the images that are evoked here of, you know, a Pence going, hey boss, Merry Christmas. And, you know, Trump responding with, steal the election. You know, it's, 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 it really distills their election, their relationship down to its. Uh, if I could just pick up on something David said. It's not only that this judge is a no-nonsense judge, he's in a circuit that is a no-nonsense circuit that has very quickly dispensed with a whole series of objections that Trump has made or people have made on his behalf um, on executive privilege, on immunity, on the speech and debate clause. These issues have all gone up and they've taken lickety split very little time to come right back down. So we are not in the 11th Circuit. We're not in the 5th Circuit, which are stocked with very right wing appointees who have shown some uh, leniency, if you will, towards Donald Trump and his ideological bedfellows. Um, This is his worst nightmare. It is a jury pool he doesn't want, it's a judge he doesn't want, it's charges he doesn't want, and it's a circuit that he doesn't want. Yeah. It's only a matter of time before he points out this is an Obama judge, but that only invites people to make the point that in Florida, it's a Trump judge. That's yeah. true. And well, it's, also, it's also not just an Obama judge, but an African-American judge, and you're going to probably see African-Americans on the jury, so this is ripe for 
race painting and these aren't real Americans, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be a huge part of the MAGA argument. A Jamaican-born African-American judge. Um, uh, but Max, try and explain something else to me because I'm, I really do feel kind of clueless. Um, there are all these Republicans, some of whom were trying to be serious people. I, I saw a statement a mo- mo- moment ago from Marco Rubio who are, are taking Trump's side and saying this is grossly unfair and it's about speech. Even though not only did Jack Smith say that it was not about speech, and not only does the indictment make it clear that it's not about speech, but there's going to be a trial in which that issue is going to be brought up, and it's going to be clear that it's not about speech. And they're all taking this position, even though it is highly likely that the positions that they're taking right now will be demolished. Um, you know, what happens to all of them? What what happens to this entire leadership cadre of the Republican Party in the event that Trump loses all of these cases? Do they continue to say it's political and ride that? Is there a moment, you know, what happens when the fever breaks and, and Trump's popularity plummets and all of a sudden, they're like, well, I liked him before, but I, I mean, what, I don't understand how the party retains its coherence in the wake of the kind of potential crisis it could face next year if he loses a bunch of these cases. Well, remember, David, that almost the entirety of the Republican Party, with a few exceptions, brave outliers like Howard Baker or, or William Cohen, defended Richard Nixon right up until the end. What price did they pay? Not much. I mean, they they, they lost the they lost the, uh, the the seventy four midterm election for sure, and they narrowly lost the seventy six election. But it didn't. It wasn't like it ended people's careers. I mean, Ronald Reagan was one of the last ditch defenders of of Richard Nixon, as I as I point out in, in in a new biography of Reagan that I'm just completing. That that hurt Ronald Reagan's chances of being elected president. Far from it. If he had broken with Richard Nixon, it, that probably would have hurt his chances of becoming president because it would have alienated a huge portion of the Republican base. So I wish I could be as sanguine as you are, or to some extent as Jen is, but I really am not uh, because, uh, I mean, well, first off, I can't profess even mock outrage that, you know, Marco Rubio, and, and this is one of the darkest chapters in my own history, having once served as a foreign policy advisor for him, which I deeply regret, but I can't, you know, profess even mock outrage that Marco Rubio, and other Republicans may not be judging this case on the merits. They may not care about the facts. They're just pandering to base political prejudices. I mean, what else have been they they've been doing since, you know, 2015, 2016? Why would we expect that to change now? I mean, they had the off ramp on January 6th that they had chosen to take it when Kevin McCarthy and uh, Mitch McConnell and all the others admitted that Trump instigated this insurrection and should be held accountable. And then, of course, as we know. They backed away from that as as fast as you would from a hot stove. So it's 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 too late now. They're as as Jen said earlier. They're all deeply complicit. They've uh, they've become his enablers and co-conspirators. And uh, the only way they would abandon him is if they saw the Republican base abandoning him. But it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem because the Republican base is not going to abandon him while the Republican Party stands behind him. And frankly, I'm not sure the Republican base would abandon him even if Marco Rubio and and Kevin McCarthy started denouncing him. I don't think most of them would care. So 
uh, it really feels like we're going over Niagara Falls in a barrel here. And, you know, how the Republic is going to land, I really am not sure. I mean, I, I, I trust and hope that Jen is right, that at the end of the day, Trump will not win another term. I mean, but I, I have to temper that expectation a little bit because I was dead certain in 2016 he would not win another term. You and I, David, were together on election night in New York when we found out that uh, Florida was actually going to Trump, not to Clinton, and and there began the the ruin of our great republic. So, uh, yeah, I'm conf- I have a, pretty much the same degree of confidence now as I had in 2015 or 2016 that Trump is not going to win. And uh, you know, my confidence, unfortunately, is not sufficient to swing Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, and a bunch of other swing states. And as as Jen knows and has pointed out on other occasions, we also have to contend with the threat of a third party candidacy from no labels that could that could siphon away the votes uh, that Biden needs in the swing states. And of course, don't forget, Biden himself is not exactly uh, the most potent candidate one could conjure for the Democratic Party. I mean, he looks feeble. He is facing, you know. The Republicans are trying to muddy the waters with all of this nonsense about the Biden crime family. But, you know, Biden has, I, I think, has screwed up in the extent to which he's embraced Biden, Hunter, his son, you know, understandable for family reasons and in fatherly reasons. But as a political matter, I think it's, it is creating an, an opening for him to be attacked. And, you know, the next time he stumbles on a stage, he's, you know, he could lose a bunch of points right there uh, in the, in the national election. So all I'm saying is it is not a foregone conclusion that, that Trump is going to lose. I mean, I think it is at this point, it is highly likely he will win the Republican nomination. Again, not a foregone conclusion, but highly likely. And I think he has a, a decent chance, not, you know, certainly not, you know, I wouldn't say it's more than 50%. I would say it's under 50%. But, you know, I mean, you know, right before the 2016 election, I think the 538 or whoever gave him like a 33% chance of winning. And I would say his chances today are probably greater than that. So that, to me, all of that is is just to say I am kind of uh, terrified of what's going to happen next year. And I am just, you know, I, I keep thinking that there's nothing the Republican Party can do that will that will dismay me more than what they've already done. But this is it. I mean, where they're rallying behind this guy facing like 78 criminal counts, and he is almost certain to be convicted on 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 most of those uh and they don't care that wow i mean that is that is truly a, you know a frightening prospect which i hope leads to the destruction of the republican party is currently constituted but it hasn't so far and i i don't have my hopes very high that it will any time in the near future well this is the point just just one moment this is the point where i have to uh, say to all of you who are not yet members that you really want to become members because that was super depressing. And, you know, there is a chance I might be able to elicit in the remainder of this podcast something more optimistic. But unless you're a member, you will not be able to have access to that. So go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership, pay $5 a month, and get a happy ending to this story. Or if you don't, you're going to be stuck with Max's unhappy ending. Uh uh, for now, bye-bye to those of you who are not members, and stand by to those of you who are members.